The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and uh, welcome to our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. This is another in our series uh, that we call The Road to COP28. We're having a series of roundtable discussions with experts, and we're having a few one-on-ones with experts. And today, uh, we are fortunate to be continuing in the latter category with Mark Jacobson, who is the Director of the Atmosphere Energy Program and Professor of Civil Environmental Engineering at Stanford His career has focused on a better understanding of air pollution and global warming problems and developing large-scale, clean, renewable energy solutions to them. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Uh, Thanks very much, David. Uh, uh, Well, as you can tell and as you know from the title of what we're doing, we're pulling together folks uh, in the run-up to COP28 to get their sense of uh, what's on the table, what should be on the table, uh, what kind of deliverables we can expect. Um, and, I, and I'd like to start with you right there. Uh, as you look forward to it, do you look forward to it? Do you think that there are um, uh, positive outcomes possible? Well, I'm always optimistic, and I know we can transition to where we need to where we need to go uh, in terms of solving the climate, air pollution, and energy security problems we face, namely a transition to entirely clean renewable energy across all energy sectors. Um, but I do know there are um, groups and who are pushing for technologies that are not helpful, including carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen. And electrofuels, for example, the fossil fuel industry um, has these uh, technologies as their pet technologies to push kind of greenwashing. These are greenwashing technologies that do nothing but increase carbon dioxide, increase air pollution, increase fuel mining, and increase fossil infrastructure and costs relative uh, to using the same money to transition to renewables. Uh, in addition, there are technologies such as uh, small modular nuclear reactors and bioenergy that are also not helpful that are being pushed. So if we focus on real solutions such as clean renewable energy like wind, solar, geothermal, hydroelectric for electricity generation, battery electric vehicles, some hydrogen fuel cell for long distance transport, 
um, heat pumps, electric heat pumps, electrifying buildings, and electrifying industry, if we focus on those technologies and uh, processes, we can solve the problem. But if we try to distract ourselves with these non-solutions, uh, then it's going to take a long time to solve the problem. Well, let's let's break that down for, uh, you know, we have an audience of people who are, they're policy nerds, so they're fairly familiar with these issues, but but I'd like to get a little bit deeper. Uh, when you talk about the non-helpful technologies, you talk about carbon capture and, and some others, um, is the core problem with these that they're designed to perpetuate um, the use of fossil fuels to mitigate the consequences of fossil fuels as opposed to moving us completely away from fossil fuels? Well, they're definitely designed to keep fossil fuels in business, but that's actually not the reason that they're not useful. The reason is they are literally not useful because take carbon capture, for example, or take direct air capture, which is sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. In the best case, I mean, the problem is it needs energy and equipment. Now, trees are also direct air capture, but they do not require energy or equipment. They grow naturally, taking carbon dioxide and water out of the air. But direct air capture equipment, what I call synthetic direct air capture, it requires energy. Now, in the best case, let's say renewable energy is used to power the direct air capture. Well, it's so inefficient that that same renewable energy, if you used it instead of running direct air capture equipment to replace a fossil fuel power plant, it reduces much more CO2. For example, you know, a coal plant emits about almost 1,400 grams of carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour of electricity generated. Now, most of that is from the combustion of the and the, which comes out of the stack, but there's also a lot of it from upstream mining of the coal. Whereas direct air capture, it only sucks out about 100 to 500 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So you're basically, by using renewable electricity, one kilowatt hour of renewable electricity to power direct air capture, you're allowing and not using it for replacing coal, you're allowing 1,400 grams of carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour to be emitted and, and, and saving only 100 to 500 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So you're increasing CO2 by making that decision. Same with natural gas. You could replace, instead of using renewable energy to run direct air capture, you can replace use it to replace natural gas and get more CO2 emissions. But in addition, direct air capture doesn't reduce any air pollutants, whereas coal does. So if you eliminate the coal, you're eliminating not only the CO2, but also the air pollution from the coal and the coal mining and the coal infrastructure. You're not eliminating any of that with direct air capture. You're therefore increasing all of these things. So and it's the same with carbon capture. It's the same with blue hydrogen, which is basically hydrogen from natural gas with carbon capture. And the same with electrofuels, which is basically re- uh, producing gasoline from carbon dioxide from carbon capture uh, with other chemicals that also require energy. So there's really no case ever that carbon capture, direct air capture, or blue hydrogen or electrofuels is useful for anything it's except to keep fossil fuels in business. Do you feel that uh, public policy fora and the COP process um, are uh, responsible for keeping these ideas um, that you have trouble with alive? Uh, do, you, do, do you worry that that is something that is going to happen in the upcoming meeting as well? 
Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, in the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, about 40% of all the funds that goes to useless technologies such as these. And I have no doubt that in the COP process that these useless technologies will be promulgated further. I mean, part of it is a lack of education. Most people are not aware of the numbers and are not aware of the problems associated with these technologies. And so as a result, you know, the information, you know, nobody's, you don't have to have many people opposing it because they just don't know. And whereas those of us who do know is like, we can only reach so many people. And, you know, despite how, how hard we're trying to get the information out, it's very difficult to get information to, you know, millions of people worldwide, let alone billions. Um, so yeah, there, there will be, the, these technologies will be pushed and they will gain traction still. Um, eventually, you know, they're going to fall on their own weight because they're doing nothing at all to help with the climate. They're just hurting the climate and air pollution and people's health and everything else. Now, you know, having tracked these things for a number of years myself, one thing that is seems apparent and seems like good news is that the technologies that you cited as constructive technologies, renewables, so on, actually have been embraced somewhat more rapidly than people expected. Not as rapidly, perhaps, as we needed to. Um, to what do you attribute that? Well, yeah, renewables like solar, wind in particular, they're the lowest cost of electricity generation, new co- of new electricity generation worldwide. Batteries have come down in cost. Electric vehicles have come down. Electric heat pumps, electric induction cooktop stoves have come down in cost. It's part... I, th- I attributed to economies of scale partly, and because just that you know, if you have a technology that's adopted widely, then just by its wide adoption and uh, the mass production of it, the costs come down. But in addition, like solar and wind, they have no fuel costs. Like, but you know, whereas coal, natural gas, oil, and even wood, you know, they all have fuel costs. You have to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels, even uranium, uh, and you have to go harvest uh, wood, whereas wind comes right to the turbine, solar comes right to the panel. So they have zero fuel costs, and that's what uh, saves them a lot of money. And they're now commodities that are really basically simple to produce. So all you need is to produce them, and that's most of the cost is in their production, and uh, they have their free fuel over their life. So that's why they're so cheap. Uh and they're being adopted. And plus, you can implement them quickly. That's the other thing. Nuclear takes 17 to 21 years between planning and operation of a nuclear plant. But new wind or solar takes like one to three years uh, for a new wind farm or solar farm. For rooftop solar, it's six months. So that's what you need to solve this problem are technologies that can be implemented quickly and are low cost. And that's what you have with wind and solar right now. Um, COP is an international meeting. Um, uh, Countries come into COP with a variety of sort of legacy systems, a variety of economic and political perspectives. Um, But for example, one of the most critical participants in these kind of discussions is China. And they've been a leader in a lot of this renewable energy for the market reasons you just talked about, for the cost reasons. They're now a world leader in exporting them. So they have a real stake in in pushing these things forward. Uh, they have not been particularly enlightened on, on, on a number of their policies regarding coal and certain other things. Um, do you see them as a constructive force simply because they now benefit 
from the renewable business in a way that uh, you know is, is 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 quite substantial. Well, they're definitely a constructive force because they are installing so much solar and wind in particular, and vehicle battery electric vehicles that it, it makes the rest of the world pale. The rest of the world pales in comparison. I mean, by the end of this year, China will have installed 500 gigawatts of, of solar alone. And just put that in perspective, worldwide, there are only about 360 gigawatts of nuclear power installed you know, from the beginning of history till today, worldwide, 360. China alone is installing 500 gigawatts of solar by the end of this year, and will have another 500 gigawatts within three years, by 2026. So have a terawatt. And worldwide, there's already a terawatt of wind installed and China has put in a couple hundred gigawatts, I believe, this year. So they are installing more than anybody else by far in terms of the uh, renewables. And same thing with uh, battery electric vehicles. So, but having said that, they're also installing coal and some other fossil fuels and even some nuclear. So that's slowing them down. But th- those are, I think, th- that will end soon. And they're, you know, the numbers there are much smaller than the solar and wind. So. Uh, but overall, you know, there are there are nine countries of the world that are ninety eight point five to one hundred percent just wind, water, and solar in their electricity generation, and China is you know down near like twelve percent, and the U.S. is around there too, maybe ten percent or something. Uh, so, and in, in, well, in, in terms of their overall energy, well, in terms of the electricity generation, you know, China's you know, probably closer to 15 or 20% of their electricity generation. The U.S. is around 20% of the electricity, electricity generations from wind, water, solar. But there are, So there are other countries way ahead of them in terms of percent, but in terms of the magnitude, China is actually the leader right now in terms of renewable energy production. Do you expect, following these trends, that you know paradigm shift is, is going to manifest itself in the, in the decade ahead? Do you think that's fast enough? If it's not fast enough, what is the, the the policy response that's needed in a place like COP? Uh, because COP has been traditionally kind of soft policy. It's been kind of, well, what can we all agree on? And then we'll all go play by our own rules. So, which, I mean, starting with Paris. And that that was not, you know, the breakthrough that it was touted to be. Are other factors going to push us along fast enough, or do they need a policy boost with some urgency? Well, I think, first of all, it's possible to transition 80% of everything by 2030 and 100% by 2035, I believe. I mean, we have 95% of the technologies we need right now. Having said that, the question is, will we transition? And we need to transition not only electricity, but also transportation, buildings, and industry. And we've done a lot in electricity, but less in the other sectors. There are some countries that will transition pretty rapidly. And, but then, you know, I think though the bulk, because of social and political reasons, will be slower. COP should, you know, it'll spur, as you say, it'll spur some t- a lot of talk and promises, but whether it actually, we get implementation is another story. But having said that, again, we, you know, it's definitely possible. We have the technology to transition. This really takes willpower, and I think, but it also takes getting past these non-solutions because those non-solutions are really what's slowing us down a lot right now. Spending money on useless technologies and keeping the fossil fuel industry alive through these useful, useless technologies 
and they're basically pretending as if they're doing something and convincing people that they are doing something. And this is going on in multiple countries. And you see this, this, this greenwashing with carbon capture and, and direct air capture in particular, it gives people this false sense of security that, oh, we're okay because you know, people say we're doing carbon capture and that's going to grow. But that is not going to do anything except to delay and increase the CO2 burden that we need to, to reduce. So we, we do need pol- more policies in place. And these policies need to be focused on transitioning to 100% wind, water, and solar across all energy sectors. So we need policies in each sector, that's electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry, to transition by different t- timelines, uh, 80% by 2030, 100% by 2035 to 2040 uh, across all energy sectors. And it's really only these policies that work. Uh, we're not, you know, carbon taxes are not going to work because nobody wants to pay tax. And so it's not gonna, they're not going to be passed. But renewable portfolio standards in each energy sector, these will work. And they have worked so far. There are worldwide about 62 countries that have policies to go to 100% renewables in the electric power sector. In the US, there are 19 states and territories that have such policies. Um, there are, and there are five, about 500 cities worldwide that have such policies. There are policies now in many U.S. states to get to electrify buildings. You have to have all electric buildings, new buildings in uh, like at least 40 cities and counties in California alone, for example. Uh, but we need policies at country levels, at state levels, and at city levels to transition each energy sector to 100% renewables as fast as possible. One of the focuses at, uh, at COP28 and in, in recent meetings has been on the issue of financing. Uh, some of the financing has had to do with um, dealing with, you know, disasters and crises. Some of the financing has to do with developing countries. Seems to me like the economics of what you're talking about here in the medium to long term are actually beneficial to the countries. The question is, how do you enable them to make the leap to those technologies? Do you see adequate financing options from the multilateral community, from uh, other other sources, in order to help developing countries make this leap? Yeah. So l- let me first uh, give some information about this. So we estimate that worldwide it would cost on the order of a little over sixty-two trillion dollars to transition an upfront cost. But we would save about $11 trillion per year. That's because energy costs in 2050 worldwide for all energy will be about close to $18 trillion per year, whereas a transition to completely electrification across all energy sectors and providing the electricity with wind, water, solar will reduce that cost to about $7 trillion per year, primarily due to a 56% reduction in the energy requirements due to electrification, the efficiency of electrification, and another 15% reduction of cost per unit of energy. So 62 trillion divided by 11 trillion per year, that's a, a five to six year payback time for an energy transition. Now, so you, but you do need this upfront cost. You have to pay this upfront cost to actually get somewhere. And so that, and many, so many countries can't afford it, but many countries cannot afford it. And right now, so cer- certainly yeah, having the countries that can't afford it, help the countries that cannot afford it to, to get where they need to be, is important, and but because of the fast payback time, it's not much of a risk in my mind. Uh, 
that we will we will have a payback pretty quickly. So if it's loans that are needed, you know, that's one way to do it is through loans. But also, you know, there will be companies like if 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 one country wants to install a lot of wind, you know, what they do is they they say, okay, we want to build the wind here and the solar here. And let's have companies bid. And then the companies raise their capital to do it. So it's not the countries necessarily that have to come up with the money. It's the companies that want to build and they're going to profit from this. But it'll pay back over time. It'll, their investment will pay back. So sure, we do need incentive. Countries do need capital, but it's really the companies that are investing you know, or putting up these uh, technologies that are taking most of the risk. And so I don't... You know, there's a lot of ways to actually finance this that are not necessarily you just have to country have to come up with a lot of money. It's really the developers that come up with the money. Yeah, presumably uh, the consumers of 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 energy are the ones that benefit in the long run because the price of energy comes down a lot. It's a fixed expense of theirs. Their bottom line would increase. So presumably, not just the producers of energy, but consumers have a stake in this that could. You know, and they and and presumably could they could play a role in helping to finance it. Yeah, well, I mean, just from my own experience, I mean, I was lucky to be able to build a new house like in 2017, and it's all electric, no gas, electric vehicles. But I and I put solar on the roof, batteries in the garage. I have not paid an electricity bill, a natural gas bill, or gasoline bill in six and a half years, and I paid back the solar and batteries in five years due to the cost savings, avoiding putting gas pipes, avoiding a gas hookup fee, avoiding uh, some roofing material, and in addition to all the savings of energy bills. So there is a definite benefit in the medium and long term. There is a short term you need financing, as we've talked about. Uh, but that, I think, is uh, we can. there are also mechanisms of loans and uh and also companies installing and coming up with the capital themselves. So I think there are a lot of ways to to solve this problem. So we just got a couple of minutes left. Do you go, you know, uh, you follow what happens at COP28. What what would you look for in outcomes, in a communique, in statement that would say to you, we've actually made some concrete progress? And, and what would be assigned to you that we hadn't. Well, the ideal outcome would be, okay, we're going not to be counting carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electrofuels, small modular reactors, bioenergy as part of a solution. That would be one thing. Uh, another, that would be a success. If there was also goals, specific goal set in each energy sector, electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry to transition to completely renewable by specific years, that would be another success, and have more f- firm commitments and uh, penalties, that would even be, that would be a dream, which is not going to happen. Um, so, but any, not having any one of those, I think is a failure, and is, or at least it's not a very, you know, it's not much progress. I mean, if there's, if there's a large push for these carbon capture technologies, the ones I mentioned, that is a failure in my mind because that is just a step backwards and is is harming the climate uh, for because that, that that infrastructure will be in place for decades to come. And so long as it's there, it's an impediment to making the changes that you're talking about because it's 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 the installed infrastructure. 
Well, I'll give you one quick example. Like in the United States, in the upper Midwest, there are five states that some companies have proposed to build up to 2,000 miles of pipelines for carbon dioxide to capture carbon dioxide from 34 ethanol refineries. And that cost is about $5.6 billion, but it locks people into what do you use ethanol for? Well, it's for combustion vehicles and you lock people in to these combustion vehicles for decades and you invade people's land with all these pipelines. If you took the same $5.6 billion and instead invested in wind farms to power battery electric vehicles, and even accounting for the difference in car costs and battery production, it turns out you'd save between like uh, 40 to $66 billion over 30 years in fuel cost savings because it's so much cheaper to have a battery electric vehicle. The energy cost is so much cheaper. So it's just in terms of, and then plus you'd you'd reduce 2.4 to four times the CO2 emissions by going the battery electric vehicle route. So it's decisions like this where people are pushing tech, you know, the existing technologies and trying to you know, add some greenwashing technology onto them like carbon capture that guide us in the complete wrong direction to increase carbon dioxide, increase cost to consumers, increase air pollution, increase land use, really do nothing but just keep these uh, industries in business. Well, and keep other industries in business in the upper Midwest, the area you're talking about. Uh, it, uh, ethanol also keeps uh, the corn business in business, and 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 it keeps the the, the people who are manufacturing combustion-driven cars in business. So th- there's a political oomph behind it because so many you know powerful uh, entities within the region uh, become advocates for it because it benefits them. Let me ask you one last question here because I just from the benefit of of users. Um, uh, our listeners, uh, it, I, I think it would be helpful to them. Uh, a little earlier, you said, well, there are nine countries, I think you said, that are most of the way or all the way there. What are the countries that have the best policies? If somebody wants to go and say, well, here's, here's an example of somebody who's doing it right, who would you cite? Well, Denmark is the only country in the world that has 100% renewable energy laws in all energy sectors, electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry, basically. There are, as I mentioned, 62 countries that have laws in the electric power sector to go to 100% renewables, but only Denmark has it across all energy sectors. In terms of what's actually been implemented, you know, the countries that, the, there are five countries that are 100% renewables right now in terms of their electricity generation. That's Albania, Bhutan, Iceland, Nepal, and Paraguay. There are another four countries that are 98.5% to 100%. Those are Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Norway, and Costa Rica. Costa Rica is the most diverse of all these. It's about, um, you know, their production is about, well, all these countries are mostly hydropower, but Costa Rica is about 73% hydro, about 12% wind, 12% geothermal, and half a percent solar. So they're the most diverse. But you know, really, Denmark has the best policies, I think, in terms of or most aggressive policies, I should say, across all energy sectors. Yeah, one of the reasons I I asked you to specify is because although all of these are relatively small countries, and that's you know a, an issue, uh, they are uh, quite diverse in where they are geographically, quite diverse in their stage of development, um, um, and as a, as a consequence, make the case that these kind of policies can be embraced can be embraced in a 
in a in a in a wide range of situations. Uh, Mark, I am extremely grateful for you to take the time and to share this uh, with us. I am sure our listeners are grateful as well. Uh, perhaps uh, next year after COP is done, we can circle back to you and talk again about what we think has been done and what should be done. But for now, let me thank you and let me thank everybody who's listened. Uh, we've got new podcasts on the climate crisis, climate change, COP28, coming out every single week. So please come back for more. Uh, And for now, bye-bye.